And if you only have come across the story of Wicked by watching the musical, and I'm told that 100 million people around the globe do know the story of Wicked from the musical. Uh, I know that's an actual 100 million, not a, you know, not a myth of it. Uh, that, in fact, you might not know that in the novel Wicked, uh, Elphaba had a, a son named Lear. Um, in fact, she wasn't ever quite sure he was her son, but he was. It means so much that Gregory Maguire is back on the ivory tower boiler room. He's entered the tower. And before you hear his interview with us, well, first you heard a really exciting teaser. And yes, 100 million people have seen Wicked, the musical. Can you believe that? And he gets into all of the discussion about how the land of Maricor is inspired by the land of Oz and it is so exciting to have him back, to have his creative energy here, for him to discuss his new work. And we do get a little into the new movie musical that is featuring, starring Cynthia Erivo and Ariana Grande. And um, also we just found out Jonathan Bailey has been cast. So exciting news coming out about the movie musical. However, I will let you all know, you might want to have Patreon open while you're listening to this episode, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room, because there's a surprise in store for all of you who want to know more about the movie musical, but wait until the end of the episode for that. And also make sure that you follow us on social media, our TikTok, our Instagram. There's so many exciting video teasers that are going to be released um, with this episode. So we're, we are at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Uh, thank you all to who came, who came out to the Halloween party and who came to our live podcast with Tanya Hurley, the author of Ghost Girl. We're going to release the live podcast um, as a podcast episode um, in a few weeks. So look out for that. And it's just so exciting having these in-person events. There's going to be more in-person events. I know we'll be with Pen and Brush again in Chelsea, Manhattan. Thanks, Pen and Brush. Shout out to Don, the director. I actually have an interview planned in person there. So more on that at a later date. You know, there's always exciting things happening here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you to Mary and Kim for making the event successful. Thank you to our fall interns. Okay, well, without further ado, everyone, it's Halloween. I hope you all are wearing something spooky inspired. Maybe you're in costume. Maybe you're all recovering like we are from a, woo, a really whirlwind, exciting Halloween weekend. So whatever you're doing right now, enjoy this Halloween special with the author, the New York Times bestselling author, known... Um, worldwide because of Wicked and because of so many other novels, 
um, that Gregory Maguire has written. And we are here with Gregory Maguire. He's going to open up about his new novel, The Oracle of AmeriCorps, inspired by the Wicked series. So happy Halloween, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our special Halloween episode. I'm so glad that Halloween actually falls on a Monday because it works for releasing this episode with a returning guest, Gregory Maguire, who is so gracious to come back onto the podcast after I grilled him on all the Wicked Universe questions. So everyone out there, please listen to the great and powerful Gregory Maguire. I think that's what it's called. Um, episode with us. And yeah, all your wicked questions will be answered there, even though I might ask him a few film questions, but we're going to wait until the end for that because you have to listen to his interview with us right now. Um, I'm also joined with Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia. Hi, Mary. Hello, Andrew. So if you don't know who Gregory Maguire is, um, which all of you probably are tuned into his work, but I'll give a little background. Gregory Maguire is the New York Times bestselling author of The Brides of Maricor, which hold that in the back of your head, A Wild Winter Swan, Hidden Sea, After Alice, Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister, Lost, Mirror Mirror, which is one of my favorites, um, and The Wicked Years, which includes Wicked, of course, which was the original source material for the Broadway musical Blockbuster, which has now become a film adaptation coming out in two parts. And we'll get into all of that later. But I am here. Oh, and Gregory Maguire is in the Northeast, as are all of us, but he's a little further up. So I'm sure his fall looks a little different, but all the leaves I'm sure are falling. And we are in a nice autumnal season here with you, Gregory. So what better way to introduce you than in the Halloween spirit? <laughs> this this is really the witching season, the wicked season. It is a time where any of us who ever went to kindergarten, however many decades ago, remember the thrill of the change of seasons and what it portends. It portends first the fright of Halloween, you know, being scared out of our pants, and then the the uh, consolation of Thanksgiving and the miracle of the holiday season, which for me was Christmas, but for other people uh, are different holidays. Uh, and then the banal and ill-judged beginning of a new year on January 1st, which means nothing to anybody except a calendar tear. Uh, but for little kids, the death of the year in October is really the beginning of their academic year and the beginning of their uh, recreation in a sense and, mm. and their renewal. It goes antithetical to the agricultural calendar and maybe that's part of why we feel so engaged in it. It's, it's just, it's a paradox that we should begin our lives anew as the world is dying. It's kind of cool, I really like that. Well, I think you should write that all down. I'm like, I'm riveted. I'm like, is this a new novel Gregory's working on? Like the thinning of the veil or what do they call it with All Hallows Eve? It's like the portal is starting to, there's this portal to the other world and it's thinly veiled um, or something like you, you, the spirits yeah. are connected to you. I yeah, you, you, you've you got it. This is the spirit world. Uh, it's almost like uh, 
you know, the full moon that's closest to the earth. The spirit world comes closest to the earth uh, at some time in late October. And it has a lot to do with the fact that the trees themselves are thinning, the canopy is thinning, the bare bones of our lives are, are exposed and are revealed. And we have no recourse. We can't dress ourselves in finery. We have no recourse but to, uh, but to recognize the hard, severe, granite-ribbed truths of how hard it is to live in life and how short life is, and we have to face it. And once having facing it, once having faced it, we can have turkey and cranberry sauce and go on. Yeah, well, or you have <laughs> someone like the Wicked Witch of the East behind me who gets crushed by the ivory tower boiler room. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, not everyone gets a fair shake in life. And I yeah. always feel for, well, in your universe, Nessa Rose, I just, yeah. you know, I have a soft spot for her. Um, yeah, she gets, but it's just like, okay, so we are here. <laughs> Let me get to it. But we are here to talk about the second book in the Another Day series. Um, and it is called The Oracle of Maricor, uh, volume two of Another Day. And the first is The Brides of Maricor. And I think something that actually you've just brought up, Gregory, is so interesting when we're talking about all Hallows Eve and Halloween is really what Rain, right? So who is Rain just for everyone out there? Cause she does have a wicked origin story. Yes, Rain, for those of you who haven't come upon her yet, Rain is the granddaughter of Elphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West. Now, if you only know the story of wicked from, yeah, you can tell the family resemblance, can't you? That's right. <laughs> I, I told the artist, her skin should be a pale avocado. And I think he pretty much, he pretty much got it. There we go. Yeah. There you go. For everyone, I took the jacket off so you can see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. See her in her glory. There you a go. beautiful green tinge to her skin. She's quite, she seems quite a bit more beautiful than Alphabet ever managed to be. Um, but she is, uh, she is Alphabet's granddaughter. And if you only have come across the story of Wicked by watching the musical, and I'm told that a hundred million people around the globe do know the story of Wicked from the musical. Uh, I know that's an actual hundred million, not a, you know, not a myth of it. Uh, that in fact, you might not know that in the novel Wicked, uh, Elphaba had a, a son named Lear. Um, in fact, she wasn't ever quite sure he was her son, but he was. And the proof of it is delivered to the reader and to Lear himself on the last page of Wicked's sequel called Son of a Witch, when his newborn baby is uh, discovered not to have died in childbirth, but still to be a little bit alive. And he carries her into the dawn light to wash off the, the, the birth blood and the, and the scraps of call from her, from her poor shivering carcass in the rain that's dripping off the roof of his little cottage. And the last line of that book is, she cleaned up green. She cleaned up green. Now, interesting, Andrew, somebody just the other day asked me where her name came from. And I suddenly had the answer, although I wrote that book more than 20 years ago, I realized that it came from the fact that it was the dripping rain off the roof that actually revealed her greenness to her father and revealed 
his mother to him as well as his daughter to him in the same instant. She cleaned up green, proved that he was Alphaba's son, which he had never been absolutely sure of. So that's where, that's where the name rain probably comes from. But of course, it's also the fact that if water had been the, the, the demise of the Wicked Witch of the West, then this girl called Rain was going to have different strengths and different weaknesses. And so that's, that's where her name came from. Now, if, if, I can, if I can be so bold, Andrew and Mary. Yes, go for it. You are a friend of ours. Go, Gregory. <laughs> Please. Um, I, I've, Please. Just, I've, I've just come back from a four-day mini tour in upstate New York where I was uh, raised and where I came from. And I have found it convenient to people who didn't know uh, how the wicked years had ended to tell them that in 2010, I concluded the cycle of the wicked years with a book called Out of Oz. Now, Out of Oz was meant both to have sonorous chimes with books like Out of Africa and, and Out of India. Uh, what's the news out of Africa? Have you heard? What's the news out of the British Parliament? What's the news out of the September 6th the January 6th commission. What's the news out of whatever's going on? Uh, so out of Oz was meant to be, all right, here's the news out of Oz, you know, this particular season. It was also meant in a second tier to suggest, I have been working in this particular um, field, as it were, for 16 or 17 years, and I am out of Oz. Some days I'm out of Cheerios, other days I'm out of bourbon. Now, after 16 years, I am out of Oz. There ain't nothing left, honeys. You know, you're just going to have to go someplace else. Uh, but the third thing, the third reason that I named that book Out of Oz is that, and I don't think it could be called a spoiler since the book has been in print for 12 years already. Uh, at the end of Out of Oz, Rain, the witch's granddaughter, takes a broom that is related to the witch's original broom. It's like a grand broom instead of a granddaughter. It's a grand broom. Uh, and she flies out of Oz. She leaves the country. She's actually, people have come into Oz like the wizard and like Dorothy, but nobody has left before. And she's the first one to leave. And she flies out over an ocean to the west of Oz that hitherto has been considered hardly more than mythology. Nobody in Oz really believes that there is such a place or has ever seen it, except animals uh, and birds. And Rain discovers it and leaves the continent on a broom. And that's where I left her 12 years ago, out of Oz. I left her free. I left her liberated from the curses of her family background and from the sadnesses and sorrows of her personal life, which were considerable. And I left her on her own nickel on a bus going out of town. And that's the last, that's the last we see of her. And that's the last I intended ever to see of her because I wanted to leave her life full and open for her own exploration without any of my nosy parkering about it. Well, so but why that didn't did happen? I <laughs> why didn't did happen. I go back 10 years later? <laughs> there are two reasons. One is that in 2010, my third adopted child, my only daughter named Helen was nine years old. And in 2020, she was 19. 
and she was in her first semester of college when the pandemic hit. I had to collect her from college and bring her home and protect her and care for her. And as it, it wasn't that long ago, but we can all remember that two and a half years ago when, when the COVID was first breaking upon the world, none of us knew if half the human population was gonna be dead in 18 months. None of us knew what was going to happen. We didn't know how quickly we could get any sort of medications, how, how quickly the virus might mutate to be something that would just wipe out the human species or a lot of it. So I became very anxious, of course, for their well-being, the well-being of my children, including my youngest, a girl who's about the same age as Rain uh, when Rain left us. But I also then found myself becoming anxious about Rain again, because now Helen and Rain were the same age. And so you hear, you've heard the phrase about helicopter parents. Well, I guess there is such a, a concept as a helicopter author, because suddenly I felt <laughs> I had decided I was going to leave her free and make her own mistakes. And I, she wouldn't have to check in or send postcards or anything. It was all right. All was forgiven. Go in peace. But I... I found I couldn't do that. I just was too concerned for her well-being. It was a transference of my concern for my daughter, but it compelled me to go see what happened to her after she got a couple of days out from the mainland. And I began to worry about her well-being. So if the wicked years was called the wicked years, I'm almost done with this long preamble. If the wicked years was <laughs> called good. the wicked years, well, I would go around and I would talk to senior citizen centers and college students and library associations, teachers, conferences, and middle schools too, somebody would inevitably raise their hand and say, we wanna know what happens, what happens next? Can't you continue? And I said, no, the wicked years are over. Those years are over. And one time a middle school boy raised his hand and said, well, why don't you write another series and call it the happy years? <laughs> and I said, yep. Honey, I don't think the happy years is going to cut it <laughs> in the marketplace. However, maybe he maybe he planted a, a little seed. So this next series, which is much tighter, it takes place not over eighty-five years as the Wicked Years does from beginning to end, but over only over six or eight months. The three books all taken together—they're almost one long book, um, just published in three sections—and. The, the title is not years, it's not months either. It's another day. It's just another day in the long, complicated life of this long, complicated country. And the, the title comes from the famous nursery rhyme, rain, rain, go away, come again another day. Another day. Oh, so another day is, is, is about rain leaving. She went away. And you can perhaps assume that when you get to volume three, she will come again. And that's where another day comes from. Yes. Well, thank you. No, I thought that is, it's so important that you lay this out because I'm sure everyone listening is just so curious how you returned. And I was like, you anticipated my question was, which was, this is like the 12 years between um, out of Oz into the bride of Maricor. And it makes sense now of, that personal journey as a parent and your daughter and <clears throat> the pandemic. So thank you, Gregory, for laying it out and for explaining 
how another day came to be creatively birthed. Um, and actually it kind of played into what Mary I know was so fascinated with, which is the creation, right? Mary, you were mm -hmm. saying like the creation of these universes. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, because I mean, you know, obviously world building is so important in these stories. And I was just so curious, like what was your process for creating Maricor and how different it is from Oz? It not it different? It's so different. And that was part of the real, the real fun of it. I, I, I set myself the, the notion that, do you remember the great story of, of, of uh, Commodore Perry and, and, and opening up Japan in the 1850s, right before the American Civil War, um, that the Japanese, uh, they've done a lot of exploration in the, in the um, Western Pacific, in the, in the Japanese oceans. Uh, but they didn't really have that much sense of what the rest of the world was about. They were insular. They had developed, because they were insular, they had developed a culture that had only, only distant relationships with even their close cousins, the, the Chinese and the Koreans. Um, they, they had been isolated long enough that they really had developed a whole different sets of uh, scriptures and religious beliefs and uh, patterns of clothing and government styles, et cetera. So I wanted to take that same kind of notion of a physical separation, especially in a time before flight. And, and uh, if nobody knew the ocean existed, then nobody was doing any exploration on the ocean uh, from Oz. And I wanted to imagine that human beings possibly at one point uh, culturally related. In fact, I, I give indication that they are culturally related in several places I do. Um, but the it's a little bit like the American Indians, the Native Americans having descended from peoples who came over the Siberian, um, you know, the Sino-Japanese Sino peoples who came over the, the Siberian Peninsula back when the land masses of Alaska and and Siberia were connected by a land bridge. Um, they developed entirely differently, but you don't have to look very far to see a familial relationship between people from, uh, let's say, Bolivia and Peru and people from Korea. There are, there are a lot of uh, physical differences, even if the separation happened so long ago that the language differences are, are immense. I imagine that, uh, that Maricor and Oz were, uh, I'm not sure which one was first, which one uh, maybe is an older civilization, but that they developed simultaneously and they have, they more or less have a common language that, you know, we wouldn't call it necessarily Indo-European, but in the same way that, that Italian and, and, and French and Spanish, and if you go deeper, you know, even, uh, Indo you know, the, the deeper level of Indo-European languages all have common Roots, even the Germanic languages, share things with um, with Persian and with Indian and Aramaic, etc. Uh, so I imagine that there is a there is a deep common ancestor that's so far lost to their own histories that they don't even know about it. But their languages are somewhat similar, and Rain finds after some struggling that she can actually begin to understand what the people of Maricor are saying she understands their language, which is a great relief to me as a writer. <laughs> it's really great when your characters can talk to one another and don't have to sign language to do the whole book. Uh, 
But the, the, your question, Mary, is really about world building. And for, for us, it was very easy for me to take the time in which was originally written by L. Frank Baum, 1900. And uh, while I didn't even know the term steampunk, uh, you know, when I was writing uh, Oz, in a certain way, there was a kind of steampunk aesthetic in my original novel, Wicked, written in 1995. Uh, and I, it, I, I drew on late Victorian and Edwardian kinds of inspirations for how to characterize the civilized parts of Oz. And even the parts of Oz that were farther off were like rural districts of England that were farther off in the 1870s and 1880s that maybe had a lifestyle that was like 200 years earlier because it hadn't been modernized, but it was still part of the same country. So like Mar Gillikin. Yes, like right, Gillikin. Like where Glinda's from. Okay. Right, exactly. And, and like, uh, like where Elphaba was born in, in the barrens of, of Munchkinland, that was really directly inspired by visits to the Lake District in England. And the Lake District, if you've ever been there, is so bleak and wind scoured and lunar and yet it was, you know, that's where Wordsworth was traipsing around writing about daffodils at the same time that Parliament was meeting and Queen Victoria was having tea with Carlisle and Tennyson. You know, it, it's, um, it's hard to believe that these things were happening at the same time, but they were. The people, the farmers in the Lake District were living the way their parents had lived 400 years earlier, sheep farming and, uh, and small, uh, small land holdings. And England was becoming a global empire anyway, without really too much of their knowledge. Well, I wanted to do the same thing. So Maricor is not steampunky. It's in fact, it, its bones and its DNA derive instead from two sources. Mary, that's a really good question. One source is my own imagination of what it might have been like to be Greek. And the reason I say that is that I, I am half Greek. My mother was Greek, uh, but my mother died when I was born, um, which is you know not, not a big revelation. I, I make no secret of it. She died when I was born. And so the Greek heritage she might have taught me had she lived and taught me how to speak Greek, et cetera, is kind of a mystery to me and it's, and it's a myth. It's something I've tried to unpack for myself but I will never be able to say that I got it spoon fed at my mother's breast or on her lap. You know, I had to dig it out for myself. So for most of my adult life, I have gone to Greece. In the last 15 years, I've gone every year, except during the pandemic. Uh, so Maricor is a way for me to express my curiosity about and my ignorance of classical Greek and and middle and late classical Rome. It's a kind of fiction. Those bones are underneath um, Maricor and they make it usefully distinct from steampunky late 19th century and Edwardian um, era uh, Oz. Yeah, well, so that's mm -hmm. why there is that I feel that texture so much mm -hmm. in the Oracle of Maricor. I mean, Mary, I don't want to jump her question because yeah. we'll get to that eventually about prophetesses and oracles and the Sybil. But even you have the marketplace of the Agora. And like, I was even curious. I'm like, oh, there's Greek terms that really remind me of ancient Athenian 
this philosophical type society that is so different than the land of Oz. But like, I'm just curious before we dive so much into mysticism, which is an exciting topic, especially with All Hallows' Eve, is how did it feel as a weight? Did it feel like you were letting a weight off your shoulders by creating such a new type of universe of Maricorp since you did have to really rely on Oz's world from L. Frank Baum and even cultural representation from film? Because it's just been so much done right. with Oz. And now, a message from the Gay and Lesbian Review. Hello, listeners. This is Stephen Hemrick, the publisher of the GNLR, here with a special offer just for you. For those of you who aren't familiar with the GNLR, let me provide a little background. The GLR is a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features such as artists' profiles and the popular art memo column. Each issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. For example, the theme of the current issue is Queens and Kings, and it features an article by Andrew Holleran about Truman Capote's relationships with glamorous women, the woman he called his swans. Now for the special offer. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven issues instead of six. Visit GLReview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. Click subscribe and enter promo code I-T-B-R for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archive issues of the magazine. Hi, it's Mary from True Crime and Academia. You're like me. You love personalized merch and you love shopping local. So here is one of my favorite local vendors to buy from. It's Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. My friend Mandy makes the most incredible personalized crochet goods and decor for your home. Spooky season is coming up. She has some of the coolest Halloween designs. So go follow her on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. Again, that's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. And place your order with her today. Right. Like, is but, it, how does that feel? That's yeah. a really great question, Andrew. And I haven't really thought about it. So I have no glib answer. I prefer to come with glib answers, but I don't have one. Uh, but I will say two things. One is that um, any act of invention requires t- uh, simultaneously a, a taking on of extra weight because you are taking on the responsibility for saying, this is how things are. You're just gonna have to trust me. Yet it doesn't really make sense, does it? That ancient Greece should be adjacent to steampunky Oz, but sorry, you just gotta gotta go with me. This is what it's like. So, you know, 
lace your boots and, and pick up your walking stick and let's go because here, here's where we find ourselves and this is where we're going. So that is, that is a weight in a sense. It, it, it's, it's a, it, it was a large challenge to take on, but you're absolutely right. On the other hand, Andrew, to get, to get out of Oz and to be in a place where nobody can say, this isn't what L. Frank Baum would have done. Well, duh, <laughs> as, we, as, as my teenagers say to me all the time, um, L. Frank Baum didn't know Maricor existed. You know, mm -hmm. he wasn't paying attention. So uh, nobody's going to tell me that I'm wrong because I'm the one who discovered it. And, and this is what I see. Now, I will say one other thing, though, Andrew. If you are familiar with um, Out of Oz, um, I sewed clues way back in 2010 that parts of Oz had been aware of a seafaring mythology. For instance, in the, um, in, in the part when, when Rain is only about 10 and she's finally reunited with her parents, Lear and Candle, they live for a time in a kind of rock-hewn chapel uh, above the sleeve of Gastille in the southern part of, of Oz. And what is carved into the rocks is a kind of mermaid figure. Uh, and, and they talk about, is this some sort of ancient um, commercial center? And, and why, or is this some sort of ancient mythology that, has, that we've forgotten about? And why would there be a mermaid carved into a mountainside, you know, where there's no, there's no body of water? And, and I knew that. I knew why way back then, even though I hadn't named Maricor, I knew that there was more to us than I was saying. I just didn't know what it was yet. And so I gave myself, I seeded myself the, um, the inspirations that I could go back and find 12 years later. Wow. And this might sound so meta what I'm about to say to you, but we're in, we're in, you know, talking about oracles and mystics. Like, I just think of this meta, the story within the story, right? Your yeah. whole base was from the Wizard of Oz, but then L. Frank Baum is also borrowing from, of course, fables and fairy tales and yes. Brothers Grimm and even what was going on in American culture in the 1900s. There's all these allegories and Something that I'm so fascinated about is how your wicked years have have taken on a story, a life of their own. Like every adaptation now of Wicked, like the musical, but now that it's turning into a film, that they're so that your characters are living outside your page in different ways. Oh, they and, sure are. They sure are. And this is before um, before we even get into. Uh, fan fiction and all that. I mean, they're living outside my pages commercially. There's also um, a, for a long time, I mean, close to 20 years, there has been a, a conceit that there will at some point be a possible streaming series of Wicked that is based on the books, not based on the musical. And that hues more closely to the somewhat darker toned uh, epic that I have set out from Wicked right up into the Oracle of Maricor and through the next book, which is already uh, written. Um, so who knows? I, I feel like you're quite right. I have, I have staked my professional reputation on 
on somebody else's foundation stones, which is kind of nervy of me, but uh, but it's what I wanted to do. So well, and I think what's happening now is people are, you know, seeing you as a type of L. Frank Baum, which is that your stories are living in a like they have taken on a life of their yeah, own. And yeah. that's so exciting. I mean, that's why I've always just been so impressed by your fantasy writing. And you've brought it up, which is um, that allegory depth you create with political, especially in the Oracle of Maricor. I mean, talk uh-huh. about the Capitol being assaulted right away. We're, we're thrown into this destructive yeah. siege. Um, and I just, but you also have that humor and the characterization and their dialogue. And there's so much fun that Rain, like Rain's characterization is so interesting because there is a lightheartedness that I don't feel with Alphaba uh, as much. And I really appreciate that. How interesting. Yeah. And Mary, I see you nodding too. And I appreciate that because it shows I've grown a little bit. Maybe maybe I've survived <laughs> wicked and so I can afford to be lighthearted. I, I wanna say, I, I'm just back from a um, four presentations in three days in upstate New York. Cool. And at one of them, it was at a university, uh, there was an open mic and people lined up in the aisle oh. you know, to come and, and speak uh, and ask me questions the way they do at town meeting, you know. Uh, school, school budget meetings or things. Uh, so the second person, this one evening, the second person to speak was a young man, not yet 30, uh, possibly not yet 26. I don't know. He looked very young to me, uh, but college graduate and apparently a um, something of a figure in, in public television or public radio in the Albany area. I had not heard of him, but then I haven't lived there in 30 years or so, uh, more than that. Uh, Anyway, it, since he spoke into a public microphone, I don't think it's I don't think it's remiss of me to say that what he said was some years earlier, he had been on the lip of deciding his life was not worth living. And he had said to himself he was going to reread Wicked uh, as his last reading experience before uh, ending his life. And he said, I, I reread Wicked and I couldn't do it after I got to the end. He didn't explain why, he didn't explain what the, what the equation of influence was. And I did not make the joke to say, I'm glad he didn't push you over the edge. <laughs> but in fact, okay. um, you know, this, is, this, is, this was a public statement he made at a public microphone. And I have heard comments like that for 25 years, not just about suicide, but about what Wicked and what the character of Elphaba with all that she's up against, what she has meant to people in, in, in times of crisis, in times of sorrow, in times of ill health and death and loss, and even their house being flooded and mm-hmm. moving to another country where they were considered uh, the enemy and, and scorned and spat upon that the story of Elphaba catches people somehow and finds them at a, at a moment of their admitted vulnerability and says to them, you're not alone. You're not alone. And 
you know, I, I, I never need to speak another word in my life and feel that I have done my little bit of good for the world if I have given people a small scrap of comfort at a moment of stress or, or crisis. That, that, that's my self-advertisement. <laughs> Cue the music. <laughs> but how beautifully that someone that he felt so comfortable to share that. It's like, why? I mean, like you are an openly gay author and I've, you know, it's not like I'm revealing anything with that. Um, But, and I've always found your novels so queerly queer. There's such a queer work, a queer um, mysticism or a world that's built or, like the underrepresented protagonist, like especially, you know, even um, Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister or um, how Alphaba is treated, but especially even with Rain being misunderstood is a good example. Yeah. And like you said, everyone has found their own um, obstacles in your novels. And yeah. I think that that's a testament to you speaking about your own um your own tragedies and your own life. And I mean, fairy tales are all usually have one thing in common, which is loss is at the beginning of them. And I think you've opened up about that in our last episode, which was about losing your mother. So I don't have to rehash it with you, but like, I remember that was the base for you really getting into Wicked, like getting your pen picking your pen back up again after having written Wicked and that draft and then trying to process that trauma that you went through. It wasn't a one-to-one, I remember, but it was really like what Alphaba experienced with not having her mother really there. And I do think that that's the foundation of fairy tales is loss and trying to process and why we keep going back to them. Loss and survival. Loss and And survival. survival. Um, survival. Now, I want to... I'm going to ask uh, you both to weigh in on what constitutes an acceptable spoiler alert, because I I went to I went around New York and gave some talks, and toward the last talk or two, I decided I was going to do something I've never done in my 42 year career of publishing, and that is that I was going to tell the secret of the Oracle of Maricor. I was going to identify the um, the identity of the oracle. Do you think that's a legitimate thing to do, or do you think it should be held back for people to read? I'm afraid that people have too much on their plate, and that and that they might never discover it because they're too busy with streaming services of you know <laughs> Dommler or whatever it is that's the <laughs> that they're binging that. Game of Thrones. And I'm yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Well, let Mary, yeah, Mary, weigh in on. I don't, I don't believe that there's actually spoilers. I believe that your engagement with a text is organic. What do you think, Mary? No, I, I agree. I think, I think it's fine. Yeah. Do you want to reveal the origin of the oracle? (laughs) The thing, the thing for me is that at, at, at my advanced age, now people can reveal all they want and I will forget about it anyway. So <laughs> everything comes as a big surprise. Oh, you're my daughter. Wow, come on in, have a cup of tea. Um, but uh, the, uh, the truth is that I have tried to stitch together the stories of 
The Wicked Years and the story of um, Another Day, because when Rain leaves Oz, uh, she has a mission that she immediately forgets about because of, of, a, of an accident and amnesia. She actually doesn't know why she is where she is. She can't yet remember. But in the Oracle of Maricourt, her, her memory starts to come back to her and it sort of finishes coming back to her when she and the band of irregulars that has, she's collected around her finally reach the westmost point in their um, escapades and they get to the tower of the oracle and they climb the tower of the oracle to ask for the oracle's opinion on what should be done and how to solve the pressing problem for the nation uh, of Maricord that has been presented to them. And Rain discovers that the Oracle of Maricord is her great grandfather. It is the Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz, who 35 years earlier, whatever it was, got in his balloon and drifted off out of the Emerald City, hoping to get back to Nevada or to Kansas or wherever he started out from, never got there. The winds blew him west across the ocean and he landed in Maricor and there he is. And, uh, and I almost said Alphaba. Alphaba's granddaughter, Rain, is able to mount the steps of his tower, identify him and confront him. And finally, after 26 years, uh, he has to own, no more than 26 years, yeah, about 26 years. He has to own up to and accept that his behavior caused immense suffering and she sticks it to him. And so I wanted originally to call the book, I was thinking of calling it The Second Wizard of Oz. Um, wow. uh, but my editor said, no, that, that invites mud throwing. So don't do that. So the Oracle of Maricor was my, was my workaround. Yeah, well, and how amazing mm -hmm. that um, it has that prophetic power. And especially because oracles, I, I don't I just traditionally think of that as very, as like a feminine or not that, but it has that yeah. feminine an antiquity, especially oh, with, right, with Homer's epics and um, right, going to an oracle in ancient Greek culture would have been you looking for should I go to war or not and um, I mean how powerful though that this tie-in is like thinking of the oracle as the new wizard right yeah. is the wizard is kind of always lurking in the background yes. of your work yes um, but I love that I mean I don't think you've spoiled anything because everyone out there still doesn't know the journey of how rain actually gets to see the oracle yeah, or, um, or, or so, what she learned, or what she learned. What she learned. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's kind of like the Sphinx riddle. Yes, of, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, You're exactly right. Like, and, and the Oracle of Delphi, uh, famously, was it was perched on a on a stone or or a stone throne or a tablet or something, and fed, you know, uh, you know, hallucinogens. Yes, and they think that they think that the sulfurous uh, air that came up through the vents in the floor actually is part of what induced her into a trance. And she always spoke elliptically like the Sphinx. She spoke elliptically and it was the interpretation of what she said 
that determined what people would do. It wasn't actually what she did. She didn't say put $17,000 into an IRA and keep the best in bonds. You know, she told them, uh, she said, when the moon is full, divide the chaff, you know, and, and then you had to think, well, when is the moon full and what is the chaff? You know, you had to kind of work it out for yourself. She really threw you back on your own defense, on your own, uh, not defenses, on your own strengths, but you had to do the interpretation. She just yeah. gave you the, yeah. the metaphor. It's like tarot card reading in a way. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. We put power. And that's the thing everyone likes to speculate is a um, psychic, like, are they actually authentic or not? But I really think it's more if you're going there open-minded and you get something out of it, then yeah, great, right? Because I right. placebo effects are powerful, yeah, uh, in my opinion. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, uh, maybe now we should play a Ouija game. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I still don't want to touch a Ouija board. I get yeah. afraid. No, right, Mary? We're not playing yeah. that. We didn't play that at the Halloween party. Uh, <laughs> next year. Yeah. Next year. <laughs> but um, something I am, because I have been wearing this Hocus Pocus shirt. I'm a right. diehard Hocus Pocus fan. And you know, as we're like nearing our end, which it always goes too fast with you, Gregory. Always. Um, is I'm always curious, like, is Gregory in conversation with all witchy authors? Like, do you know Alice Hoffman? Do you know like the writers of Hocus Pocus? Like, or just that whole, just because witches are such an interesting concept. And I think with Rain, you really have diverge from say Alphaba because we had the image of the Wicked Witch of the West, right? right. We knew what she mm -hmm. looked like. Right. Um, but, you know, how do you kind of weigh in on how witches are represented right now? Cause it's been a long time that you've been spending intimate moments with witches. Yes, it is. And um, to answer your, your first, the first part of your question first, um, Alice Hoffman and I were friends uh, for a while. Our paths have diverged in the last few years. I haven't seen her in a while, uh, but but we did have mutual friends in common, and, and we for a while uh, our paths would cross at this this party or that. Um, but beyond that, I uh, you know witches keep to themselves. <laughs> they don't uh, you know we they talk about conclaves of witches and conferences of witches, and Roald Dahl has a lot to say about you know going to the South Shore. Of, of England for witches, yeah. but I think witches are are really more like sibyls. They're more like hermits. They work on their own. And so, no, I'm not. I'm not a card carrying member of my local witches union. And uh, you know, I don't. I don't have witches teas. Um, uh, in fact, I try to keep. I keep trying to keep my head down. Uh, but that was the first part of the question. Then I forget what the second part. Oh was. no, just like you spent since the early 90s with which oh yes right imagery right. which characterization right. i mean i think you even live well i don't know your exact location but um well i do because gregory sent <laughs> me a book but i would never <laughs> reveal that um <laughs> but i do know like you live close to salem i do live i do live yeah close to salem. And, and that and, is and, yeah. such an interesting place oh it is and in, in fact my daughter goes to school in the next town over from salem so i've actually been there yeah. fairly recently the last couple of years and i have another book that is a children's book called egg and spoon mm. and egg and spoon is also option for a hollywood movie uh an original yeah. an original hollywood uh musical where apparently the script and the and the, and the 
and the songs are already written, but but they're waiting to see how wicked the, the movie musical does before wow. they green light um, the next one. And if it does well, they'll green light it. If it doesn't, that'll be, you know, oh well. Uh, but <laughs> Megan Spoon is also about a witch. It's about the famous witch known as Baba Yaga, um, the Russian witch who lives in a house that stands on chicken legs and who appears in Russian folklore as a kind of uh, all-purpose character in some of the famous Russian fairy tales collected in the 19th century, but much older. She is the old crone in the wood who needs help carrying her bundle of twigs and firewood and for whom the youngest son in a poor family is the only one to help her. So she gives him the advice that allows him to win the heart of the Tsar's daughter. But in other stories, same one called Baba Yaga is like the witch in Hansel and Gretel who eats children and puts their skeleton, their, their skulls on, on stakes around she's a house. cannibal yeah. witch yes mm-hmm. exactly which and, i've and i've wanted to and that's been in the back of my mind gregory when there's fairy tales i'm like huh where's the hansel and gretel gregory Maguire retelling yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that that, that <laughs> i think uh, i see it in your future gregory i don't know i think about um you know andrew i think about retiring and i think about saying <laughs> I've, I've had I've, I've given as much as i have and you know, ten years, twelve years ago, I thought I was out of Oz, and uh, now I think um, I'm not out of energy because I'm 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 in great good health, and my mind is still functional as far as I know. Yeah. But, and you're a swimmer too. And I'm a swimmer a little bit, okay. but I am nonetheless. I I do think the one thing I don't want to do is repeat myself. As long as the world mm. keeps confounding me and keeps, and as long as I'm alert enough to keep not being able to understand what I'm seeing and noticing that I'm not understanding, then I have something to write about. But if I stop mm-hmm. noticing, or if I stop, you know, or if I start thinking I understand everything, then I'm done writing because writing for me is a magic key to help me open the puzzle of this strange place that I seem to be spending 70 some years in. Well, not 70 yet, but coming up for it. <laughs> well. Happy almost birthday now. Uh, but, well, you do have, we know you're working on the third volume. Yeah. Um, so we will definitely, Gregory, you're going to come back on for that, I hope. Well, um, I, 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 will, I will tell you something. If you don't tell anybody. Uh, yeah, no one's that, listening. Don't worry. That, <laughs> I'm just is that, that is that it's just possible, since you mentioned it at the, at the top of the hour, since you mentioned that you were always compelled by Nessa Rose, mm. it's just possible that at some point in the future, you might see a little more of her. <gasps> oh, That's all I'll Ooh, say. There might be something in Maricor. I'll, I'll say nothing more. Oh, I'm so, well, yeah. you know what? You just launched us into what I know, Mary. And I want to hear about, which is just a little teaser about the film, which I know you always say you only hear it a little before the public, but I don't know if I believe that, Gregory. Uh, I'm just- Andrew, I am a a Roman Catholic and I can't lie. Yeah, in in the same way that I answer answer, um, questions honestly, sometimes 
uh, delivering unearned intimacies because I can't lie. I also am not lying when I say nobody tells me anything. I, anything that I get, I get from Entertainment Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, however, you do know you do know about th that the casting is at the, now there are three cast members names: Cynthia Erivo for Elphaba, mm -hmm. uh, Ariana Grande for um, Glinda, Glinda, yeah, yeah, yeah. and what was his name? Jonathan Bailey for yes Fiera. from Bridgerton series from Bridgerton, which I've never seen. Have you seen it? Yes, yes. Actually, Mary and I did a whole like discussion about him being openly gay, but he like um he plays this love interest, but he's not a he's not a queer character in Bridgerton. So we were just like dissecting, but oh, he is he's a very fine specimen. Oh, good, good. Well, that's, I don't that's, know his singing, but um that's what's needed. Fierro has to be really ravishing. Uh yeah. when I was when I wrote Wicked, I um, I cast it in my head as a movie because there were so many characters in it that I had to be able to keep them straight in my mind. And I was writing it very, very fast. So for, you know, mind you, this was almost 30 years ago that I first wrote it, Elphaba in my mind was pictured as Katie Lang, Katie Lang 30 years ago when she was lean and short hair, and very beautiful, sharp nose beautiful, but in a spiky, unusual kind of beauty. Uh, Glinda was played by Melanie Griffith with her high, high ah. hearing voice and her corkscrew curls all over the place. And Fierro was played by the very young and very sexy Antonio Banderas. Mm -hmm. um, so so that was, those are my pictures oh, of like that. hot items, you know, in, in every direction. Um, well, so I don't know this about this. Oh, he will be, belly. he's, He's very aesthetically pleasing, right? Okay. Mary? Good, good, good. I'm I'm hoping maybe Fierro and Bach have a little something. <laughs> just, that would really take things to the new level. But I am I am really curious about who plays Nessa Rose. That's something like I'm wondering if they're going to I think it's a great chance to have someone who is in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, or yes, who right. has a handicap like a physical disability to actually, because there are many actresses. Absolutely. I would, be surprised, I would be surprised if they didn't do that at this point. But I'm, all, I'm also very curious to see how, um, I mean, I, I, I very much endorse the notion of, of uh, open casting as they call it. But if you're telling a family story and people look nothing like each other, then that, uh, that makes, um, the, the uh, suspension of the imagination a little bit more difficult to do. You can do it, but it makes it a little more difficult. You you're, you're end up, part of your brain is always saying, well, wait a minute, what? You know, um, there are ways around it. Uh, I'm really interested and I can't wait to hear who is cast as Madame Morrible. That's the one oh. dying. I have- oh, I hope, well, do you have uh, someone in mind? No, go ahead. You, you, you. Well, I want it to be Cheryl Lee Ralph because she just won the Emmy. For, uh, for what? She won the Emmy for Abbott Elementary. And she was Madame oh. Marble on Broadway. Oh, really? And, oh, mm -hmm. gosh. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. who knows? Who knows? Maybe that will be it. Um, I, I didn't see her as Madame Marble. Uh, I, I tried to see every cast, but it's kind of impossible at this point. Oh, you should type it. Don't worry. It's on YouTube, Gregory, as is uh, I will, the I original. Will. But I do hope that Adina and Christian, I had no, no, go ahead. Sorry. 
I've no, heard I rumors. <laughs> I've heard rumors about Madame Marble as Kristen Chenoweth. <gasps> oh, really? She rumors. Is- yeah. She used to say that years oh, ago. She said it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. She's she said it. But uh, when when I was casting the film in my head, uh, twenty five years ago, thirty years ago, Madame Marble for me was Angela Lansbury, and now Angela mm-hmm. Lansbury has died as recently as the last you know two years. I thought maybe they could still get Angela Lansbury to do it. Um, so I'm sorry that she's not around mm-hmm. to. Uh, uh, or Meryl Streep. Why not Meryl mm. Streep? Meryl Streep. Well, Meryl Streep has done several witches now, so um, who knows? I wouldn't mind Meryl Streep, believe me. No, uh, I think she would be great. Uh, but yeah. I don't. I'm hoping Kristen Chenoweth would be an interesting choice. Actually, it, it I could. She's played villainous characters, especially in that Schmigadoon. Sh- uh, oh, Is that what it's yes, called? Yes, She was very funny in that. But did you see her in that? Uh, I forget what, what it was called. Uh, the, the the children of Disney villains and villainesses. Oh, uh, I know what you're And she had, she yeah. played like Maleficent, I think, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. from Sleeping Beauty with the horn. I think that was who she was supposed to be. Yeah, I only yeah. saw one, she had one musical number that was about how much fun it was to be evil. And <laughs> she just chews up the scenery and spits it out. And oh, it's she's stuff. so good. It's, it's about three and a half. If you haven't seen that, I want to be, don't you want to be evil or something like that? Um, you talk about YouTube, look it up and you won't be, you'll have to watch it about 20 times because she does so much so fast that you just have to watch it over and over again to hear how her voice changes and her mannerisms. And she's, she's a, a chameleon. She's so yeah. talented and yeah. scary. Well, they have to involve Adina and Kristen somehow. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I mean- I, I think that will happen definitely, but um, yeah. So for our last section, I mean not last section, but as we wrap up, um, I know Mary and I were so interested. There was like one. There's a lot of moments, but one moment that stuck out to me is there's this quote at the beginning about Rain's dislike for the Grimmery, which is the magic book. Well, right. it's more than a magic book, but the spell yeah. book yeah. that Alphaba really possesses, but. It's quote, she had taken her revenge upon it for good. And I'm just wondering, are you like, has the musical just come into your brain so much that now the lyrics just start coming out or is it just unintentional? It's certainly intentional. And it's it's certainly meant to be pointed. It's meant to amuse people like you two. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's, but it's also, I couldn't do it if the phrase for good didn't originally come from common parlance anyway. If if the phrase would if the phrase would mean nothing to the readers who didn't know the music, then I couldn't use it. But because mm-hmm. it's already because it's a phrase that already means something, and that's why Stephen Schwartz used it, um, I can reuse it, and I can give people I hope a tiny little thrill in their solar plexus. You know, it's like uh, to to see the. Uh, see the reverberations, you know, chiming back and forth. So yes, I've done that. There's a place in, in um, one of the books, I think it's Out of Oz, when Rain comes back to the Emerald City after a long time. And she says something like, you know, the Emerald City, you know, so proud of itself. It's kind of revolting. There was this musical noise that would never stop. <laughs> and like celebrating itself. 
And that was, you know, another nod to the, the ubiquity and the, the so far indomitability of Stephen Schwartz and Minnie Holtzman's version of my story. It's, a, it's, it's music, but it's also noise. And it's, it's really all over the place. It's even hard for me to um, put cotton wadding in my ears sometimes so I can hear my own true native storytelling voice again. I do it. I can hear it. But it takes some effort. Mm. Mm. So, Mary, any question about while Gregory is here about the film adaptation or the Oracle? Well, they're t they're tied together. I would say the Oracle of Maricor and your Maricor universe and the film adaptation are basically you're actually volume three is probably going to come out when part one comes out of the film. Just about. Mm. Or I'm not sure. It's, I, you probably know better than I do. Is part one coming out in December 23 or 24? I think it's 24 because they're filming in England right now. Okay, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. Well, uh, um, The Witch of Maricor, which is the third volume, will ooh. be out in, uh, in a year. So October 23. Okay, yeah, uh, so we'll right before. Yeah, we'll see what's what though. I'm, not, I'm, I'm keeping my cards close to my chest after that. <laughs> okay. My tarot, well, I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, do you know anything more about why there are two parts or can you speculate um, about I, You know, I, now I can, this part I can say. Um, okay, Gregory Maguire, what are your thoughts and speculations on parts one and two? What conversations did Gregory have with the director, John M. Chu, with the composer, Stephen Schwartz, with the screenplay writer, Winnie Holtzman, who also wrote the book of the musical Wicked. Okay, well, for all of that, you're going to have to head to our Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe because some things we can't reveal to you all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. You've gotten a lot from Gregory Maguire so far. So head on to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room that's patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and join at five dollars a month that's it five dollars everyone out there if you are a caffeine addict like i am to all of my local coffee shops they all know who i am they know andrew rimby five dollars is less than iced coffee nowadays so please help support us um becoming a patreon member really means a lot because not only are you going to get this exclusive discussion with Gregory Maguire about the Wicked movie musical, it's at least 10 minutes of a discussion. You also are going to get bonus videos. Mary has True Crime and Academia bonus videos. There are bonus episodes that are about 30 minutes. We have all of our video episodes of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room discussions. So you can see Gregory Maguire's video episode, which includes the full episode, including the movie musical news. And for the movie musical discussion, there is an audio only too. If you just want to click right into our show notes, you'll see a link to our Patreon and you'll be able to listen to Gregory open up about the movie musical. So can't wait to hear all of your thoughts. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Happy Halloween. We had such a wonderful time at Pen and Brush for the Halloween party. So thank you to Pen and Brush for hosting us there and for Tanya Hurley 
for letting us have a live podcast interview with her about her New York Times bestselling series, Ghost Girl. We're going to release the live podcast audio to you all. And just a reminder that um, on Thursday at 7 p.m., if you live on Long Island, I'm hosting the first ever Real Housewives trivia game night with Skin Med Spa. It's going to be at Barrito, which is an excellent Mexican restaurant, amazing margaritas. There's going to be drink specials there. We're going to reenact some Real Housewives moments. It's going to be very iconic. I have some Real Housewives who are actually sending in questions and you're going to hear from them um, during the event. You're going to actually hear them read the questions. So it's really exciting. I can't believe we've had a Halloween party. We've had a live podcast with an audience. We've had, we're having a real housewives event. We had Gregory Maguire back on the podcast. I am so, so, so grateful to all of you out there. Thank you for supporting the ivory tower boiler room. Become a Patreon member, please join us on TikTok and Instagram at ivory tower boiler room. Also join our, uh, you can follow us on Twitter too at Ivory Boiler Room. It still exists. We still post there. And as some of you are more Twitter academics, some of you are more creative influencer artists on uh, TikTok and Instagram. We are on all of the channels for you all. And thank you to the fall interns. I am so, so grateful to Andrea and Chris who helped make the video teasers and they help share our social media. They are putting up the photos. They're putting up captions to ca uh, capture your attention on social media. Thank you to uh, Rosie who helps Mary with True Crime and Academia. Thank you to Taj who helps Kim with all of the film editing and audio editing to deliver such a great experience to you all. Okay, and thank you to Mary and Kim who I just, I wouldn't be where I am today without you both. So thank you for being part of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team. Thank you to the audience out there. Can't wait to um, hear your feedback on the Gregory Maguire episode. And make sure if you ever want to direct message us and comment on our social media posts because I actually do respond. I'm the one who's responding to you on social media. Okay. Bye to you all out there. And have a wonderful, energizing, creative week. And here's some more Wizard of Oz.